I'm reading the passage in 1 Corinthians this morning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring light to what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You honored, and we were dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated, and we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Thanks, Terry. Well, good morning. Well, we have an election coming up this week. Exciting time in our country. Raises the question, though, what, what does make for a successful president? Or what makes for a successful presidency? Is it someone who keeps the economy going well? Somebody who keeps our borders safe? Somebody who's a strong leader? Who deals with issues? Somebody who is committed to whatever their particular agenda or philosophy is? Someone who's committed to helping the poor? I mean, what, what is your criteria for judging whether someone is a good president? 
You see, it all depends on your criteria, right? And we tend to have different criteria based on our own perspective. Well, let's bring it a little closer to home. What are the marks of a successful church or a successful pastor or church leader? What are the criteria you use to decide that? Is Cole a successful church? Well, some would say, uh, yeah, we teach the word. That's what's important. Others might say, well, Cole's a big church, so yeah, it must be successful. Others would say, well, Cole's been about the same size for a number of years. It's not really growing, so really it's not successful. (laughs) Or we don't have enough certain types of programs. We don't do enough outreach. We do too much outreach. We don't spend enough on missions. We spend too much on missions. We don't do enough baptisms, whatever it might be. Do you get my point? It, it, It all depends on your criteria, how you evaluate a ministry or a pastor. Dennis Smith wrote this, What is success in pastoral ministry? We often judge ministerial success by the same standards used in the secular world. Business, for example, measures success in terms of heightened production, more extensive operations, larger profits, more imposing organization and staffing, bigger, better, higher positions. That's the mark of a successful person. Such philosophy has encouraged us in the church to believe that higher production, more baptisms, bigger operations, larger and more modern church facilities, larger organizations and staff are the criteria by which we define success in ministry. In other words, business criteria have crept into the church. I certainly noticed that when I've been in between pastorates. I've been here 19 years, praise God, but before that I served in some smaller churches and you go through a hiring process, you send out your resume, you go, go through interviews. It's, it's a business model by and large. When I was hired here, Fortunately, I had a relationship with David Roper and they saw that my gifts fit. The elders hired me because it was a good fit. We had a personal relationship. I thank God for how that all went. Thank God that I have the opportunity to be here. But I find my experience in a number of churches, smaller churches, that people have criteria for evaluating pastors and there's a number of them, but a real common one that I saw over and over again is someone would say, in a church, we need a good teacher. So they'd get a good teacher. After a while, though, people would begin to get disgruntled and say, well, he's a good teacher, but he's not a good shepherd. We need a good shepherd. So eventually he'd be forced to leave and they'd get a good shepherd. And then people get, would get disgruntled and say, well, yeah, he's a good shepherd, but he's not a, that good a teacher or that good an administrator. He's not a visionary. We need one of those. And people go back and forth because they are evaluating pastors, ministries, church leadership based on business or worldly criteria. Well, guess what, folks? The same thing was happening in Corinth. Paul is speaking to the church because they were judging pastors, church leaders, apostles in similar ways. We know some of the ways that they were judging them. We can speculate on maybe some of the others. There were things like, 
Well, Paul, you're not that great a teacher. You don't speak that well, not as well as Apollos, so Apollos is better. Or, Paul, you know a lot about the Scriptures, a lot about the Old Testament. Apollos doesn't know that much. So, Paul, we want to follow you. You're the one we like. Yeah, but there's Peter. Peter was one who walked with Jesus on earth. Apollos didn't. Paul didn't. So, hey, Peter's the one we want to follow. And they were going on and on, bringing in more criteria, judging different pastors, different leaders, different ministries. I've done more baptisms than you. you you've done fewer. Yeah, but I've planted more churches, etc., etc. And so there was all this criteria going on in comparing church leadership. And it was creating division, struggle, and the church had lost its focus on God and what He was about. So in our passage today that Terry just read, Paul gives the marks of successful ministry. And folks, I think as we look at this passage, we'll see that the marks of successful ministry in God's sight are incredibly different than the way we tend to look at it today, which is similar to how the Corinthians were looking at it. We'll see the marks of successful ministry, what God is looking for in those who serve Him, whether pastors or elders or Sunday school teachers or custodians or any of us, because we are all called to ministry. What are the marks of successful ministry, whatever our ministry might be? Let me pray, and then we'll find out together. Gracious Lord, thank you for calling us together as the body of Christ. Thank you for dying for us, that we might have life in you and life together as a community. And Lord, as we look at this challenging passage, the challenge is the way we look at leadership. May you change the way we think. May you break down those walls that cause us to be judgmental and critical so that we might be more the body of Christ you called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first mark he gives us is simply faithfulness to God. How does he explain it? How does he describe this faithfulness to God? Well, he begins in chapter 4 by saying, let a man regard us in this way. Hey, here's how I want you to view us as apostles. Paul's talking about himself, Apollos, Peter, all the church leaders that were traveling around and teaching the church, building them up. He says, here's how I want you to think about us. Not as whether we're good speakers, whether we've had a big impact. He says, regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, stop looking at us according to the criteria of the world around you. But instead ask yourself, how well is this leader, how well is this ministry serving God, listening to God as master and doing what he says. He, he uses a couple words here. He uses the word servant, which is not kind of a typical word for servant. It's, it's one that has roots in the idea of under rower. You see, in the Greek world, they had 
these ships that were triremes that had three levels of oars. And the word for servant here is the one for the lowest level of oars. <laughs> the very bottom of the ship. And he says, this is how I want you to view us. And by the New Testament days, the word came to mean simply a simple house servant. In other words, this is one who answers the door, who washes the dishes, who washes the clothes, cleans the floor, cleans the bathroom, makes the bed. <laughs> he says, this is how I want you to view us, not as some big shot speaking on a stage, etc., etc., leading people to Christ, but servants who are simply serving in Jesus' house, obeying orders. And then he says, and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The word steward is a house servant as well who's given responsibility to maybe handle finances, make certain decisions for the house, but always under the authority of the master. And he says, a steward of the mystery. We've been given the gospel, this incredible news that Jesus came and died for us so that we could be forgiven and be made new in Christ. He says, we've been given this mystery. You want to you evaluate us as, as apostles, as pastors, as leaders? Then use this criteria. How well are they obeying Jesus? And how well are they doing at keeping Jesus central? Keeping the gospel central. Teaching the mystery of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. Those are the criteria that he gives, first of all, that we are faithful to God. Faithful as servants, faithful as stewards. How well do they handle their giftedness? If they're gifted teachers, do they teach? And do they teach about the gospel. It's interesting, he doesn't give any criteria about how many come to Christ, how many are baptized, how many show up for a meeting, how much money's given. Interesting, he doesn't use any of those criteria, does he? Hmm. It's all about are they faithful or not. Now, this puts on its head our whole view of success in ministry, right? Because we look at a big church, big ministry, etc., and we think, ah, oh, that's success. But Paul's saying, no, you've got success all wrong. Of course, this is the example in the scriptures. One of my heroes in the scriptures is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who God came to and said, I'm calling you for a certain task. Jeremiah stepped out in that task, and for 40 years he taught a rebellious nation of Israel the truth. Kept bringing the word to them over 40 years, and over 40 years we see virtually no response to his teaching. Was he successful in ministry? Absolutely. <laughs> because he was faithful to do what God called him to do. And if you want to evaluate your own ministry and say, Am I doing, is my ministry successful? Don't worry about numbers. Don't worry about how many people show up. But ask yourself, am I really being faithful to what God's called me to do? And am I handling well the gospel as a good steward of what God has passed on to us? So that may raise the question for us then, well, how do we, how do we know if we're being faithful? How do I know if I'm being what God calls me to be? Well, 
interesting what Paul says. He says, well, for one, it's of little account whether you judge me or anybody else. He says, I don't look to people for that. I don't look for other people to tell me whether I'm being faithful to God. In fact, he says, I don't even evaluate or judge myself. You know, we don't know our own hearts very well, do we? And we're not good evaluators of our own ministry and how well we're doing. People ask me, you know, how did this go? How did this ministry go? Or how did whatever go? And it's like, I don't know. (laughs) I was trying to be faithful to what God called me to do, but only God knows. And that's really what Paul says here. He says, you know, I don't even examine myself. I, I don't know of anything about myself. You know, I try to deal with things as they come up in my heart, but he says, I'm not by that acquitted. He says, there's only one who can examine me, and that's the Lord. Therefore, he says, don't judge one another. Don't judge your leaders before the time, but wait till the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, I don't even know really if my motives are pure. Only God does. And someday he'll reveal all that. He'll reveal what's really going on that's hidden But you can't see that, Paul is saying. So why are you judging the motives and the ministries of other people? If only God can see it, we can't even see our own. Why are you comparing and judging and creating division? They're simply servants of God. And the question is, are they faithful to carry out what God has given them to do? And I like the way he ends it here. That when Jesus returns, he will give to each man or woman the praise that's due them. It really shows what Paul says our motive should be, which is to please Jesus. That our task in any ministry isn't to look good to other people, isn't to be successful and get a lot of people to come. It isn't anything like that. It's simply, am I being faithful to Jesus to do what he's called me to do? Am I pleasing him? And in the end, we will each get our praise from God. I look forward to that day when all will be revealed and what's in our hearts will be truly seen. I love his focus. It's on not pleasing people, but on pleasing God. Now, let me say this, because this may be a question that comes up in your mind, and you may say, well, so is there any accountability? Well, yes. There is, very clearly. There's accountability. If pastors, elders, church leaders, church ministries are obviously unfaithful to God, are obviously sinning, Paul makes very clear elsewhere, he says, there is accountability and leaders are accountable to the body. And he even gives guidelines for how to approach a leader who is sinning. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, pastor, church leader, ministry, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. There is clear accountability, but what Paul's getting at is this constant kind of bickering and comparing of ministries where it's not sin that's involved, it's just 
Oh, he's a better teacher. Oh, our pastor's better at this. Oh, I like him. I like Rod because he's taller. <laughs> yeah, well, I like Jackson because he's shorter. Probably nobody says that, but... <laughs> he's saying, oh, don't do that. It only creates division. A big part of it is, is how you view your church leaders. And if you bought into kind of a worldly business model, then you see your pastors as church leaders as essentially employees. Now, think about this for a moment. If, if a pastor is your employee, we hired them to do a job. We're their bosses. They better do a good job. He better teach well. He better shepherd well. He better run this ministry well. He better do that. She better do that. She better do this, etc. You see, then it's your job to judge them, to evaluate them, to critique them, and to make sure they do their job. So you better give them a lot of input to make sure they're doing their job. But Paul is saying that is not a biblical model. You see, if, if you view your pastoral leaders, elders, ministry leaders as servants of God who are accountable to God first, who are there simply to serve and to be faithful to God first, just like you are, then your response to them is going to be very different. You won't be judging them. Instead, you'll be looking for ways to encourage them to be faithful to God. You will want to walk alongside them and encourage them with your giftedness so that you're working together as the body of Christ to serve the Lord together and be the body of Christ together, not be critical and judgmental and divisive. You see how different that looks? That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 puts it this way, verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. They labor, they work, they have a calling from God as servants of God. So he says, first of all, the first criteria, the first mark of Christian ministry, Christian leadership is, are they servants of God? I want to encourage them as, their, as a servant. Secondly, the second mark is one that we would never choose in our day, but it's suffering. You want to know a mark, Paul says, of true Christian ministry? If someone is really following Christ and serving Him, how much are they suffering for Him? Let's go on and see how he explains that and how he describes that. In verse 6 through 8, he makes it really clear. He says, if you judge your Christian leaders, your elders, your pastors, the apostles, he says you're essentially putting yourself over them. You're puffed up, he says. You're proud. It puts you in a place of superiority, of arrogance. He says, hey, I don't want any of you to become puffed up. That's literally what it says there. Arrogant, puffed up in behalf of one against the other. It really creates division one against the other, as well as against your Christian leaders. This word puffed up has this idea of 
pride. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make myself look good so that you'll look bad. When I was a boy, my dad used to take me, pile me in the car and my brothers. We'd get up early in the morning while it was still dark outside in eastern Oregon and we'd drive up on this hill called Sage Hen Hill. And we'd wait for the sage grouse to come do their mating dance. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's fascinating. So the hens are all wandering around and then here come the males. And they puff themselves up. They have these air sacs and they blow them up really big, as big as they can. And then they deflate them and then they puff them up again and they deflate and they strut around trying to impress the hens as much as they can to look as good as they can so that they'll want to mate with them. It's kind of a funny sight, actually. But I think that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says, you Corinthians are strutting around like you're, you have everything, you know everything. And, you know, the Corinthians, as we'll see later in the book, they were thinking they were pretty good. Man, we have all these neat spiritual gifts and we can speak in tongues and we can do all these great things. And Paul rebukes them because they're proud and arrogant about their giftedness instead of being humble servants of the living God. And here he's saying you're puffed up and you're judging your leaders, judging the apostles. You guys are missing the boat. You see, pride, he goes on to say in these verses, is a couple of things he highlights. Number one, it's going beyond the scriptures. Notice what he says in verse 6. I've applied these things to us so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. What what is he saying there? He's saying, if you're bringing in all these worldly criteria to judge one another and judge your leadership, etc., you're going beyond the Scriptures. Go back to the Scriptures and what do they really say about leadership and about us, all of us? Well, Scriptures say, the Gospel says very clearly this. We all deserve hell. Apostles deserve hell. Pastors deserve hell. Anybody in the body of Christ and outside deserves hell. That's what the Scriptures say. And the only way we can be saved is by grace in Jesus Christ because He died on the cross for us and as we put our faith in Him, we're all forgiven sinners. That's who we are whether you're a pastor, leader, whatever, given certain gifts or whatever, there's no comparison because we're all forgiven sinners and the ground is level at the foot of the cross, folks. So he says, don't go beyond what is written. If you're judging by various criteria, you're missing the boat. You need to look at one another and at your Christian leaders as simply forgiven sinners and we're all in the same boat. Do you see how freeing that is and how that gets rid of pride? It's, yeah, we have certain gifts that we need to serve God with, but nobody's better than anybody else. And he goes on to say, pride is not only that, going beyond what the scriptures say, but it's forgetting, he says, that everything we have is a gift from God. Notice how he puts it. Verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? He says, everything you have, your giftedness, your forgiveness, 
your abilities, natural and spiritual, everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. So why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? it N.T. Wright says it's like boasting because, I have, because you have brown eyes or blue eyes or whatever, or boasting because you're left-handed or right-handed. I, that's a gift, folks. Why would I boast about that? And he's saying it's the same way. Everything we are and have is a gift from God. And so do you see if you have the attitude of, hey, we all deserve hell, but we're all just forgiven sinners, and everything I have is a gift from God, then it, it gets rid of pride. It gets rid of comparison. It, it gets rid of putting yourself above others and comparing and thinking you're better than so-and-so, but they're better than me, etc. And gee, I feel bad about myself, etc., etc. So Paul is challenging the pride that they're showing as they compare one another. And then he goes on in verses 8 through 10 to be very sarcastic. I like the way Paul writes because he can be really sarcastic sometime in here. Notice what he's saying. You're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so we might reign with you. Verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise. We're weak, but you are strong. You have status. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. Why is he being so sarcastic here? He's trying to say to them, look how messed up your thinking is. We're apostles. But here you are thinking, oh, gee, we're so great. We can judge the apostles and say which ones are the best ones and, and which ones aren't. He says, stop being so proud, so arrogant. It's true we're going to reign with Christ someday, but that's when he returns, not now. And in fact, he goes on to say, this truly is the mark of a successful ministry. Verse 9, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He says, you want to see my resume? (laughs) You want to see what real successful ministry is? Well, look at us apostles. Realize we are rejected by the world. We suffer for Christ. We're like at the end of the procession. He's using an imagery here from a Roman triumphal parade. The Romans would go defeat an enemy and then they'd march into Rome in this victorious parade and the generals would ride in first on their horses and the crowd would be cheering and throwing flower petals and burning incense and there'd be this fragrance everywhere. It's wonderful. And then came the marching army, triumphant, and everybody's cheering. And at the end of the line would come the captives the conquered people that were destined to be thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And Paul says, that's us. (laughs) Yeah. You think successful ministry is being at the front of the parade. But real success in ministry, what God has called us to here on earth for any of us, is suffering. 
being at the end of the parade, being rejected by those around us, by the world, condemned to die, where the crowd jeers at you and laughs at you because you're about to be martyred for your faith, which virtually all the apostles were, except perhaps John. Makes you really want to be in ministry, doesn't it, folks? Oh, that's what ministry is about, suffering for him, giving up my life for him, being willing to be rejected by the world for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is giving us his resume, saying, you want to know what makes for success in ministry? It isn't gaining numbers, power, strength, wonderful speaking ability, big crowds, etc., It's a willingness to suffer for Christ so that the life of Christ might be released in us. That's why suffering is so important because ministry comes out of the life of Christ being revealed in us. And as we suffer for him, as we're rejected, as we experience the things he talks about here, hunger, thirst, poorly clothed, rejected, being poorly treated, as we serve him, as we follow him and suffer those things, the life of Christ gets released in us. It's suffering for God and being faithful to him. As he says in verse 11, to this present hour we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed and are roughly treated. We're homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled or insulted, we bless. You see, this is success in ministry. When you're insulted and yet you bless the very people who reject you. When you're persecuted, you endure. When we're slandered, reviled, we encourage the very ones who reject us. That's what he's saying here. And then he says something very interesting. We become as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now. Isn't this a different picture of success in ministry than we see in our world today? You see, we've been confused by the world around us and we've gotten to think, oh, yes, boy, he's successful because he's written a lot of books, he's on TV, he's got a big church, he's, you know, he keeps moving up or whatever it might be. And Paul says, you got it all wrong. Real success in ministry are those who are faithful servants of God and who suffer for him, dying to themselves, so the life of Christ can be released in them and through them. This phrase, scum of the earth, dregs of all things, those two words, scum and dregs, they mean in, in the Greek world, basically it's, it's when you wash the dishes and you have dirty dishwater, that's the scum, that's the dregs. It's the floor sweepings when you finally get around to sweeping the floor. <laughs> and you've got a, the dirt. It's the vacuum cleaner bag contents. <laughs> Paul says, that's who we are. That's what it means to be successful in ministry. To be willing to be seen as nothing in the world. To be seen as a fool, he says, worthless, a cripple so weak you need God an irritation of society, worthy of being thrown in the trash from the world's point of view. 
that's success in ministry. To be faithful to God, to continue to trust Him, to walk with Him, to faithfully handle the gospel, the mysteries of God that He's given to us, and to keep sharing His love for the world. That is faithfulness. This phrase, scum of the earth, My daughter was at Seattle Pacific, and while she was there for a while, she went to a church called the Scum of the Earth. Maybe we should change our name. What do you think? It was an offshoot of of a church out of Denver, and I read their mission statement. And their mission statement is based on this verse that we are called to be the scum of the earth. Their mission statement describes being willing to be rejected for the sake of the gospel, being willing to suffer so that others might know Christ. I don't know how well they live out their mission statement, but I applaud their vision. It's a worthy vision, one that we all ought to have in ministries. (laughs) Because, as Paul says here, that is successful ministry. See, folks, we've gotten all confused. We've got our thinking messed up. It's wrong about what success in ministry is. Just like the Corinthians were messed up in their thinking about successful ministry because the world had encroached on their thinking. What is success in ministry? Well, you can't go to a better example than Jesus himself, right? Well, let's think a little bit about Jesus. How successful was he in his ministry? Well, he had really poor hiring practices. I mean, look who he chose for the disciples. What a motley crew and one that eventually betrayed him. When he had the chance over and over again to get a big crowd and finally make something of himself, what did he do? He sent the crowd away. He ran off and hid in a cave to be with his heavenly father. Or he pulled the disciples aside just to be with them. Not very successful. All those disciples that he chose, that he hired, eventually abandoned him. (laughs) And he ended up dying as an enemy of the state. Publicly executed on a cross. To prove, for the Romans to prove that they had power over this weak person and that he was totally rejected by them as a traitor. He left no organization in place to carry on his plans and purposes. Folks, Jesus was a failure from the world's point of view. But from Paul's point of view, he was faithful to be a servant of his heavenly father, to do exactly what God called him to do, and he was willing to suffer, no matter what it costs, that he might bring the gospel to us, that we might have life. From God's point of view, was Jesus' ministry successful? Couldn't have been more successful. And it's a challenge to us in our thinking. And so Paul's saying, don't be arrogant. Stop using worldly criteria to evaluate ministries and churches and pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers. Instead, begin to think correctly about them. 
In ancient Athens, they used this word scum to describe a criminal that they would throw in the water one a year to appease the god Poseidon so that hopefully they would have successful boat trips from there on. They sacrificed his life, this scum of the earth, (laughs) so that life, they could have life. It's a good picture of what servants of God are called to, to give up our lives for the sake of others, that they might have life. You want to compliment me as a pastor? Say, wow, you're a great scum of the earth. (laughs) Well, maybe not, I don't know. (laughs) But let me say this, is Cole a successful church? Well, the real question is, are we faithful to what God's called us to do? Are we faithful in handling the gospel? And are we, in all of us, wherever God's placed us, willing to suffer that the life of Christ might be released and the gospel might go forth. That, my friends, is successful ministry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for shaking us up. We admit the world is encroached in our thinking in so many ways. I pray, Lord, that you might help us think correctly about ministry and about leaders and especially about ourselves. Thank you that we are forgiven sinners. Everything we have is a gift and therefore we offer it back to you and ask you to use us to release the life of Christ in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd stand with me, I want to close the service. I want to send us out with this encouragement from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May we, as his followers, walk in Jesus' steps and run the race that God has set before us. Amen. Have a great week.